another Emerson Automation Experts podcast. We continue our Asia-Pacific Sustainability and Decarbonization podcast series with a closer look at hydrogen as an energy carrier and its growing role in the energy mix in the region. I'm joined today by Emerson's Martin van der Merwe to discuss hydrogen. Welcome, Martin. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Martin, it's great to have you here with us. Well, let's get started by asking you to share your background and path to your current role with our listeners. Oh, thanks, Jim. Well, um, uh, I completed two bachelor degrees in South Africa um, in the early 2000s, uh, one in electronic engineering and one in IT. Uh, And I suppose I'm giving away my age a bit, but... uh, Back then, uh, there wasn't a concept of dual degrees, so uh, I could see that the two fields were starting to merge, um, so I went for it. Um, and uh, after graduating, I joined Emerson's local business partner and eventually moved to Australia in 2008, um, joining Emerson there as a, as a project engineer. One of my first projects um, that I got assigned to was uh, to implement a control system for a first of its kind carbon capture pilot uh, with the government research agency um, CSIRO. Uh, This was uh, at a coal-fired power station uh, in the Hunter region. So uh, I suppose you could say that uh, I've been interested and involved in sustainability technologies from from then on. I started moving into management roles uh, responsible for the service organization that supported our key clients in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and until recently, I managed the systems and software business unit here. Uh, in the four years uh, in that role, I noticed a very significant move in our clients' focus towards projects that support the global shift to improve sustainability and decarbonization. Uh, and that shift prompted me to just very recently uh, move into my current role, where I support the sustainability and decarbonization business for Emerson Automation Solutions in the Asia-Pacific region. So my role uh, aligns very well now with my passion and Emerson's purpose um, to help customers across various industries in Asia uh, make measurable progress towards their net zero targets. Wow. So you were way ahead of your time getting involved in carbon capture long ago. That's great, Martin. So we're talking about hydrogen specifically today, and there seems to be a lot of talk about hydrogen and its potential. Perhaps you can start our discussion by just explaining why is hydrogen such a hot topic now? Sure, Jim. Hydrogen is indeed spoken about a lot recently, and if you follow any newsletters, you'll see um, hydrogen is mentioned uh, very often. In fact, before this podcast, I just looked at uh, the Google Trends and uh, the interest in, in green hydrogen. Um, this is, of course, hydrogen produced from water electrolysis uh, using renewable energy such as wind and solar. 
Uh, and its interest grew exponentially from December 2019 and uh, remains at its peak now since October last year. Uh, hydrogen certainly has a lot going for it. Um, it's abundant in our universe. It's, uh, and in, in its pure form, uh, has a very high specific energy per unit mass, uh, around 120 megajoules per kilogram. And, and that's actually uh, over two and a half percent or two and a half times better than gasoline or, or petrol. Uh, and about the same for natural gas. Uh, and I suppose that's why NASA uses it, uh, uses hydrogen to power their space rockets, right? But I think most important, the most important reason why hydrogen is gaining such momentum now is the culmination of two trends we never experienced in the past when we had these so-called false starts for hydrogen. Uh, the first trend that we've seen is the dramatic drop in the cost of renewable power around 80% for solar PV uh, and 40% for onshore wind over the last decade. Uh, and that's according to IRENA. Uh, renewable energy continues to reduce in cost and uh, fossil fuels um, continue to become more costly to find, extract and process. Uh, and so the economic feasibility of hydrogen becomes more compelling in this scenario. But there is uh, an, another variable in the economics which uh, is uh, the second trend that I wanted to, to touch on. And that is the push uh, for net zero emissions globally by 2050. Uh, uh, yeah, also with an accepted implied cost associated with carbon emissions in the operations of every business, um, every sector in society, uh, and even our own households. Um, you know, we're recording this uh, in the uh, Earth uh, Month um, and uh, I've signed up to the Eco Challenge, and it's very interesting when you look at your household impact on carbon emissions. So it certainly impacts all of us um, in our in our day-to-day -day comings and goings. So, so these two unique market trends uh, has enabled the beckoning of a hydrogen revolution, I would say. Hydrogen's potential as a zero carbon energy carrier, if produced from renewable energy, is really unmatched in its versatility. It can act as a battery to store excess energy. Uh, that energy can then be converted back to electrical energy using fuel cells. Of course, there's uh, a loss there in efficiency, but nonetheless, uh, it can also be combusted without any carbon emissions, uh, purely only water and vapor um, from the emissions, which is, uh, which is great. So this combustibility in particular provides a great alternative for heating applications um, to replace fossil fuels in hard to abate end users. Um, yeah, one such a sector uh, that has seen a lot of traction in Asia is the use of hydrogen in transportation using fuel cell electric vehicles, uh, especially for heavy duty trucks and buses. Uh, and there's even development for large haulage used in mining. Uh, and again, a good example of this is the Japan Olympics uh, and, and the Beijing Winter Olympics, uh, there was a, a very significant and prominent uh, place for hydrogen, you know, the, uh, the Olympic flame, uh, and also a lot of the transportation, the buses to carry the, the athletes and the officials were all hydrogen. Uh, so it definitely um, it, it is big in China and, and Japan and Korea for that matter. But we also see a rapid development in applications for iron and, and manufacturing of green steel, 
uh, that is uh, very prominent in China and Australia. Uh, and also for the use of hydrogen directly in gas turbines to power planes and marine vessels and, and to generate electricity. So looking at that, just that part of it, you know, those two benefits there, it is conceivable that hydrogen could one day support all of our consumer transport and manufacturing infrastructure energy needs with no net carbon emitted, which is amazing. But we're not there yet, of course, Jim. Um, there, there are significant R&D efforts underway in all of these sectors to support a transition to, uh, to hydrogen, especially to remove production, uh, to improve production efficiencies and uh, cost, as well as uh, looking at end uses and applications. Most governments uh, are investing large amounts specifically in hydrogen technologies. And some reports estimate that about 5 trillion US dollars needs to be invested in hydrogen alone for us to achieve uh, a global net zero by 2050. So yes, Jim, everyone is talking about hydrogen right now, and it's little wonder. It is a perfect fuel to support our current energy needs, and it is recognized by researchers, industries, and governments as a critical segment in a suite of solutions to help the world achieve a lower carbon future. But I wanted to just be clear as well that, you know, I believe hydrogen will feature significantly in the energy future energy mix uh, that will include large-scale electrification, biofuels, and even some fossil fuel derivatives that are abated through carbon capture, for example. Well, that's a great explanation of why hydrogen is such a hot topic right now. Martin, so you mentioned governments are recognizing the potential of hydrogen can you elaborate on what countries in Asia are communicating as their strategies for hydrogen? Uh, well, you're touching there on a very interesting point, Jim. Japan was really the first country globally to identify and push uh, its basic hydrogen strategy recently in, in 2015. And I say 2017, I say recently, it's, it's five years ago now. Um, that was closely followed by detailed roadmaps and strategies from France. And then in, that was in 2018. Uh, and then Korea and Australia uh, followed in 2019. And then after that, uh, you could see a, a you know, flurry of countries um, uh, issuing or publishing their hydrogen uh, roadmaps. Uh, these roadmaps and strategies are essential to stimulate investment in hydrogen and provide commitments and a vision by these governments for hydrogen in their respective economies. Uh, but, you know, roadmaps are, are nice, Jim, uh, but I, I always like to look at what's, what's the real drivers for them and, and to consider, you know, with those drivers, whether they'll deliver meaningful outcomes. So when I looked at these roadmaps, um, it's very interesting when you compare and put them next to each other and you start to notice that emergence of an international trade market. Um, some countries in the Asia-Pacific region, like Japan, Korea and China, their strategies have a significant hydrogen import requirement. While Australia and India have very clearly stated their ambition in their strategy uh, to be hydrogen export powerhouses. Um, so the, the supply and demand relationship really is no different to today's energy flow uh, in the region, uh, say for LNG, uh, and that makes sense, right? The difference though with, renew uh, with renewables uh, that countries here don't need to have fossil fuel reserves. They just need good solar irradiance and uh, zones with, with high constant wind speeds. 
There are other parallels to the emergence of hydrogen and the Asian LNG boom of the uh, 80s, when you know, oil prices surged and industrial countries like Japan, Korea, and Taiwan at the time um, shifted to LNG. Uh, there was a strong intent and strategies declared by these countries at the time um, to develop alternatives to oil and coal. And, and today, we see fossil fuel prices at near record highs again, largely due to the conflict in Europe and, uh, and production levels struggling to keep up with demand. And again, we have strategies uh, being developed by countries uh, to find alternatives to the fossil fuels, uh, like these hydrogen roadmaps. But there is a new variable that has a big push this time around, as I hinted before, which is, which is different to the LNG boom of the 80s. And that is the variable that strongly supports the development of hydrogen. It is, of course, uh, the commitments uh, that the UN climate change countries, the COP countries, have made to achieve global emission reductions and, and minimize the impact of a warming planet. Uh, to most, uh, actually, the most recent IPCC report um, again emphasized the critical role that hydrogen will play in a global decarbonization journey. So, uh, these commitments have, have been a, a big driving force behind these government roadmaps uh, and investments. Um, governments need to take this action not only to achieve their targets, but to support the interconnected global markets decarbonization effort. Uh, we can already see uh, the impact that the European Union's carbon border adjustment mechanism have on, on countries that rely on exporting their goods and materials to the EU. Of course, having restricted trade or, or worse, you know, higher costs of exports will definitely have a detrimental impact on the gross domestic product of these countries. Uh, this cost uh, to carbon emissions will be a benefit and a driver, I believe, for a faster renewable energy transition, including the use of hydrogen. Another point to mention about these roadmaps is that they include versions of what can be termed as hydrogen hubs or clusters. And these are areas where clean hydrogen can be produced and consumed within an industrial complex or manufacturing hub. These hubs are actually critical to address the supply and demand equation for hydrogen. Uh, and this is again similar to what we have today, where typically refineries would sit at the center of many industrial manufacturing complexes. And actually there are many hydrogen production projects um, identified in Asia, which uh, has the aim to transition these existing fossil fuel dependent manufacturing hubs to low carbon hydrogen hubs. Uh, yeah, the roadmaps recognize not only the need to transition existing high carbon energy streams, but uh, also to plan for the increase in energy resources required based on population and middle class growth. In fact, Asia's electricity demand is expected to double by 2050, uh, according to the latest IEA report. Not only do we need the hydrogen then to support the transition of high carbon energy networks, but we also need that to augment uh, the current energy mix and supply to sustain um, forecasted growth. So, so in summary, Jim, you know, the major AP countries have demonstrated an understanding of the impact uh, and opportunity that a global energy transition represents. And they have outlined their strategies and commitments uh, with over $35 billion in public investment um, uh, to deliver on these roadmaps.
it's still not quite where I think, well, where it needs to be, but that, that investment is continuing to increase every year. Um, so, you know, I think it's going to be a busy few years to, to 2030, Jim. <laughs> well, that certainly sounds like a whole lot of things going on there. And I think it's clear from what you've outlined that hydrogen is a viable energy carrier for the future and the governments are investigating in the region to ensure they participate in this new clean energy economy. So what's holding it back then? And what challenges are you seeing in the Asia region? Yeah, Jim, you know, the, listening to what I've been saying, it all sounds too good to be true, right? Um, there definitely are real challenges in this transition to hydrogen. The first and obvious one is cost. Uh, even with a significant drop in renewable energy costs to date, uh, green hydrogen is not competitive with fossil fuel-based alternatives of blue and grey hydrogen, uh, where, where grey hydrogen is typically being produced from natural gas using a process called steam methane reforming, and, and blue hydrogen being that grey hydrogen uh, with the associated carbon emissions captured and stored. Um, so it, it is widely accepted that uh, a supply cost of around one and a half US dollars per kilogram of green hydrogen is needed to, to cross this cost barrier. Uh, the, actually, a, a recent Goldman Sachs carbono, carbonomics report uh, on hydrogen uh, does make a compelling case in this uh, threshold being uh, really on the horizon. In, particularly, in particular, the report uh, looked at different hydrogen manufacturing locations uh, and their associated level levelized cost of energy. Um, their analysis considered a continued drop in the cost of renewable energy, uh, the reduction of the cost of electrolyzers, uh, and an increase in cost of fossil fuel based um, uh, fossil fuels, uh, including uh, the requirement for having carbon carbon offsets. The results of their analysis proposes that green hydrogen could reach parity with grey hydrogen as early as 2025 in countries with low renewable energy costs and high natural gases, gas prices. Uh, and by 2030 for countries with low renewable energy and gas prices. And it's interesting when you look at that uh, and you look at the, the projects that are being outlined that this time frame really aligns with those current forecasts of projects um, that have been announced um, that will come online. Um, these projects will increase global hydrogen production capacity to over 20 gigawatts by 2025 and 80 gigawatts by 2030. And interestingly, yeah, around a quarter of that hydrogen being produced uh, being in Australia uh, alone. So, uh, you know, the, the, the second challenge that I would touch on is um, the demand uh, side of it, uh, you know, the application of hydrogen. Um, earlier, we spoke about the versatility of hydrogen, but today the demand for hydrogen is predominantly in traditional refining for hydrocracking and, and other chemical processes. And it totals only 70 megatons a year, which is really measly compared to the the planned 20 gigawatt by 2025, right? So to accelerate demand for hydrogen, we need the sectors that have a high energy demand and significant carbon footprint to transition to hydrogen. 
where companies in these sectors can um, co-locate operations near hydrogen production facilities or even share existing infrastructure, that would be um, even better. Uh, the early applications that will stimulate demand in this sweet spot are, of course, fuel cell vehicles, uh, gas blending, uh, methanol production, iron ore and green steel manufacturing, and uh, uh, ammonia production. So fuel cell electric vehicles uh, have been around since 2013, uh, and Emerson Technology, uh, with, with its Tescom brand, have been used in fuel cell applications for quite some time. Uh, and I think you've had Nicholas Marty talk a bit about that on your uh, podcast series. Um, so I won't dwell on that, Jim. I would say, though, that thinking back to hydrogen's uh, superior energy-to-weight ratio, it is a great fit for trucks and buses and freight trains, planes and marine vehicles. These are vehicles where the use of batteries would negatively impact their freight carrying capacity today. Uh, and they are also um, uh, typically located in depots where hydrogen refueling infrastructure could easily be co-located and produced, uh, therefore lowering the cost. Japan, Korea and China are actually leading the world with the number of active hydrogen refueling stations. Uh, there's around 270 today uh, and rollout plans reaching over 1,500 by 2030. And, and these are all backed up by really strong fuel cell electric vehicle adoption incentives and policies, um, as mentioned before. In terms of gas blending, several trials and research projects across the world have shown that most existing natural gas pipelines can support up to 20% hydrogen blends with some minor retrofit upgrades required. Actually, Emerson have been involved in many of these hydrogen injection skids. Uh, and uh, one such a project here in Australia was with ATCO's Clean Energy Innovation Hub. Uh, and they have some great videos about the project uh, and also a demonstration of uh, blended hydrogen and natural gas. They, they show a, a, a burner, your burner at home, uh, and uh, they show you the mix, uh, you know, natural gas, and then what it looks like with 20% hydrogen. So, so at, at 20%, most down, downstream alliances like your go, gas stovetop or gas ducted heating don't have to be upgraded or changed. The biggest challenge really relates to the actual pipeline materials and integrity, uh, which pipeline operators often need to upgrade or extend. So, you know, the impact can be minimized in that way. Most countries with extensive, extensive gas networks like the US, UK, India, Australia, uh, and, and many others um, all already have projects announced uh, to have hydrogen gas blending in their networks to various percentages uh, by 2025. Other challenges uh, include the transportation of hydrogen, um, especially large volumes between countries. Uh, hydrogen actually has a very low energy density which makes it hard to transport in volume. Even in liquid form, its energy density is still less than a third of LNG. And at much lower temperatures, of course, at cryogenic temperatures around 200, below 250 degrees Celsius. Um, so these very low temperatures, movement and management becomes pretty tricky, uh, but not insurmountable. In fact, the first liquid hydrogen shipment from Australia arrived um, in late February this year. Uh, in Japan uh, on the Suzhou frontier. Uh, and Emerson, again, 
have technology and continue to develop products that will support liquid hydrogen production and transportation. Uh, an alternative to shipping hydrogen is, of course, in the form of ammonia. It's also used as fertilizer, so that, that there's existing infrastructure for that. Um, and it's a much more stable and easier uh, way to handle the material than, than liquid hydrogen. But its drawback is uh, the conversion cost of ammonia uh, back to hydrogen, of course. So several challenges exist, Jim, but uh, with all of them, you know, there are solutions being developed uh, and the learning rate in hydrogen sector is, is very high. And here at Emerson, we certainly see ourselves as partners to finding uh, those solutions and to overcome them. This is the end of part one of my interview with Martin. <music>